Hey fam, welcome to the You Can Sit With Us podcast. My name is Lexi B and I am your host and executive producer. Let's get into it. John Graham's professional passion is helping global companies uncover who they are at their core. Through award-winning employer brand and employee value proposition development, Graham has discovered innovative ways to bring the humanity of employee stories to life. As a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner and culture transformation consultant, his work centers on improving the lived experiences of marginalized employee populations through bleeding-edge approaches that disrupt the status quo and create equitable and inclusive environments. Graham earned a bachelor's degree in African studies and master's degree in education from Lincoln University. He holds an executive certificate in fostering diversity and inclusion from the Yale School of Management. John is also the best-selling author of Plantation Theory, The Black Professional Struggle Between Freedom and Security. John Graham, John Graham, how are you? Hey, I'm good, Lex. It's good to see you. Good good to be with you. You as well. You as well. So I'm going to ask you, what is in your cup? What are you drinking as we have this discussion in fellowship? Uh, today, it is the oldest and the probably the best drink in the world. It is water. Uh, yeah. Some of that good old-fashioned H2O, that free 99. And that hydrate, hydrate. <laughs> the I, I hydrate. Live in, I live in Dallas. It's 107 outside. Oh, so gosh. nothing in my cup until after 9 p.m. Oh, Lord. Mm. <laughs> Other mm-hmm. than water. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you currently live in Dallas, Texas, but where are your people from, John? How did you get to Dallas if you're not originally from there? Okay. Um, so my people people are from Georgia, and then they, okay. they moved up north uh, via the Great Migration, early 1900s, yeah. um, to the Philadelphia area. Uh, okay. So my mother and father are from... Philly uh, and Philly adjacent or Philly uh, metro area. Uh, and I, I grew up as an oddball on the West Coast, born in Arizona, moved to nine different states before college, and then um, then uh, lived in PA for about 20 years after undergrad, and then moved to LA, and then moved to Dallas. So, yeah. I mean, Are you an army brat? I, I wish. Ford Motor Company. <laughs> I mean, that's like relatively like the, I mean, yeah, it's, you know. Corporate with my father, he was in sales and marketing. So every new region. So yeah. So moved around a lot. Fantastic. So today I want to talk to you about this topic that I'm always thinking about. And I feel like we are kindred spirits when I figured Mm. out that you exist and talk about this, which is divesting for the purpose of investment. Mm. But before... Mm we get really get into it. Um, you wrote something on the internet, John. <laughs> on Beyonce's internet? Yes. I <laughs> on Beyonce's internet. Okay. Or yes. I, I, I would say specifically with this quote that I'm about to read on Harriet Tubman's internet on mm-hmm. June 29th of 2023. Okay. And you said, we can either continue to beg for access 
or remember that we built these institutions in the first place. It's time to focus on building our own institutions. What happened, <laughs> sir? Well, this, this, <laughs> that was probably in response to this little headline that most people didn't see. It was uh, mm. the Supreme Court actually removing and overturning race-based admissions considerations. Uh, yes. which a lot of people, and I always specifically say that because they didn't overturn affirmative action. No, they did not. They overturned one specific piece of it, which happened to affect Black folks. So yes. um, the most. Uh, so yes, that was my response to that because uh, I'm, I'm, I've reached a point uh, in my understanding in this evolution that we continue to fight to change a construct that wasn't built nor designed with us in mind. And I remember, because I am an ardent student of history, that when we were forced to be obligated to ourselves as a community, we had no choice but to build our own institutions, and we did, to the tune of 107 HBCUs. Um, we had thriving communities, self-sufficient, vertically integrated businesses, mm -hmm. churches, education systems. I like to add multiple Black Wall Streets. Um, I mean, these I mean, days, everyone talks about Tulsa. And again, shout out to Tulsa. But Tulsa wasn't just the only one. Hundreds of thriving of communities. Yes. All hundreds of Greenwoods, all of which destroyed. But, but my mm -hmm. point is... We had a there was a time where we had a communal obligation that was so in inherent that we didn't think about patronizing whites, not only because we couldn't, but we had what we needed. Now, was it, you know, the mm. best of the best in some cases? Yes. Mm. <laughs> right. Which is why they destroyed them, because they were actually better than what uh, white communities had. But my point is, we've gotten into this notion since access was granted with the 64 Civil Rights Act that we should, that the, that the construct should somehow be bending towards our comfort. Mm. And I dare say, if you were to go to somebody's home and tell them you don't like where they put their couch, the temperature they keep their house, the food, the way they season their food, how, how, how often would you invite them back over? No, no. If you want mm. those things, build your own. So that's where mm. I'm at. And that was the genesis of that, that, mm. that statement on Harriet Tubman's internet. Yes. On Harriet Tubman's internet. Yes, in 20, in 2018, I, um, I went to go see Angela Davis speak and she's mm. also, she lives in Oakland. You, so like That's shout out cool. to Oakland. I currently live in Oakland and you can literally see Angela Davis and very famous, um, phenomenal, you know, former Black Panthers and Trader Joe's. They're still very vibrant. They're still very real. Um, you know, you, they could be in a yoga class with you and you're like, is that? That's that one dude in that one textbook. <laughs> no. Right? Still looking not a day over 32. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. And so I went to hear her speak in San Francisco. And similar to what you just said, she basically said she grew up in the South. I forgot where she grew up in a middle class black neighborhood. And this is the time that segregation was real. So when she was little, if she went to a grocery store that said four whites only, really bad things would happen. Yeah. But growing up as a child, she was very, very happy because she grew up in this all black middle class neighborhood 
where she knew she was loved and cared for. She went to her little elementary school. She learned all the things, especially mm. all the black things. She had a black pediatrician, a black, you know, a black dentist, a black chiropractor, a black bank, and all these things. And she said it wasn't until she went to college on the East Coast, where at this point, we are now in the 64th Amendment. Um, segregation is no longer legal in the physical sense, even though it is very much real and violent in the emotional and mental sense and the psychological sense. And she sure. said... I felt very unsafe because it was clear that I was not welcome. And she was basically talking about, she, she is not promoting segregation at all, but she's talking about growing up as a little black girl in the mm -hmm. South, in this bubble of prosperity that happens to be black, where every day she wakes up and she's told that she can be anything and do anything and have examples of representation of it. And then it's time to go to college and everyone and their mom, dog, and cat is trying to pull her down because of what she looks like. That's right. That's right. It's a it's a fascinating story. And one, actually, I was just having a conversation about today with somebody who was born and raised in uh, Texas <clears throat> versus, you know, us coming from my wife was born and raised in West Philly. Um, mm -hmm. I've lived all over the place, but primarily uh, West Coast, East Coast. All our lives were taught, don't move to the South. Right. Don't go yeah. to the South. Now, yeah. that's generational uh, epigenetics, right? Our great grandparents who migrated, what they fled from the South, obviously, they would never want to go back to. So Understandable. It's, it's planted, right? And then you got, you know, the education narrative, media narrative, all that South bad, whatever. Well, what we tend to forget is that the highest population of Black folks in this country still resides in the South. Many yes. did not migrate, right? And so that really forced a sense of close-knit community because, because they didn't leave, they were still dealing with segregation and the remnants of it that were still very real and alive post-1964 Civil Rights Act, right? Yes. So just because mm -hmm. the acts, you know, uh, passed didn't mean that people snapped overnight and were like, okay, cool, come on in, right? <laughs> I wasn't like that. So, so there's a very different sense. And I will often say, now having lived in the South, um, that the most extreme racism I've dealt with or encountered was on the East Coast, the, 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 the you know, in Philadelphia, in Jersey. In Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. Well, to, to Angela's point, to, to Sister Davis, like you, and, and from a historical context, let's also keep it funky, the North in context to the South in the, in the Civil War, the North still didn't necessarily like Black folks either. It's just that you Oh, go ahead. Can you say that one more time for the historians <laughs> listening? Because I am yeah. sick and tired of being sick and tired Look. of hearing about how Abraham Lincoln wanted to free black people and how the North was the safe haven. So oh. I need you to say that one more time. Now, those, those, were, those were economics. The people in the North no more liked black folks than those in the South. We had a Amen. different economic relationship. Pure mm. and Right. Mm. And so as the East, excuse me, as the North was moving towards an industrialized nation to be competitive with Europe, who was already ahead of them, mm -hmm. they needed to mechanize. And the South was still stuck in agricultural by hand labor entrenched right. in it for 250 years. Nobody's really moving to uproot their economic foundations just because we y'all want to compete. This is what right. we've done. What we always done. We're not changing it. Well, let's fight about it. <laughs> Literally, let's just go to war. 
yeah. and they did. But, but my point is that the North was uh, very much so still a um, a haven for the anti-Black sentiment since its foundation, right? Yes, the country was uh, colonized starting in the North. So, <laughs> and this is the problem with our education system and how it teaches history, which is a whole nother conversation that we could probably go into because it's relevant. But when we, when we forget these historical contexts, we tend to think very one-dimensionally or even two-dimensionally when it's a three to four-dimensional conversation. Mm-hmm. So your experience as mm-hmm. a man, as a Black man in the North of this mm-hmm. country, the East Coast specifically, mm-hmm. you're saying that was more racist than oh. maybe even in Texas. I, I, I haven't been followed in stores in the South yet. Uh, now, granted, I've only been here a year, but... Um, okay. <laughs> but um, I, I haven't been called uh, a nigga with a hard ER in the South. Mm. I haven't uh, been pulled over because I looked uh, suspicious yet in the South. All of these things happen in the North and the West right? mm. or in the East Coast and the West Coast for me. So I say all that to say racism is, is it's all over this country. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I think the sentiment that it is, you know, the moment you step into the South, you can get ready for the, the bombardment of just race racism. It's like, no, I get called sir in the grocery store by complete strangers just as a, as, as protocol, because there is that deference to hospitality or, or, or you know, a sort of a Southern warmth. Uh, and people that might carry those sentiments, uh, perfect example. I had a guy come out to do a service, had a Confederate flag tattooed on his leg. Wowzers. Uh, okay. Sir uh, was the most helpful, personable guy ever. His beliefs and his aesthetics didn't necessarily match, but I, I can say whatever feelings you harbor, as long as we have a mutual respect and you know you, you don't act a fool, then we're cool, right? Do what you do. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and I know people who 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 grew up next door to openly active KKK members. Now uh-huh. that story is more so. Uh, they were cool. They just always had this understanding from a KKK perspective, as long as you know your place, then we're good. Right. Okay, fine. As long as you don't show up with any burning crosses on my lawn, do what you do, sir. I mean, that's your right. Um, so I, I guess I'm where I'm going with that is just my experiences uh, as a Black man in this country, I have not felt the overt racism that was, uh, you know, propagandized to me, uh, you know, versus what I actually experienced in the East. Um, I agree with that. I also want to make it clear for people listening that like the South is still racist. I don't want people to think that it's all pops and butterflies. But I remember... Oh, yeah, exactly. But I distinctly remember coming to California from the Midwest to go to college at 18. And I remember I called my parents and I said, this is weird. And they were like, what happened? And... At the time, I didn't have the language, and then I graduated, and then I started working in the Bay Area. And I told them, I said, I work with among the most liberal people on paper that you will ever meet. I'm also keenly aware that this is a very violent place. And they said, why? And I said, because when I'm at home, the KKK member lets me know exactly who she, they are at all times. And I'm not saying that I agree with their sentiment, but it's good to know where you stand. 
And what I've experienced um, as an adult living in the West Coast is Black Lives Matter, queer lives matter, right? Um, We need these systems in place to protect people. But this very under the table and very deliberate racism that is very violent and the violence starts with, I'm not a racist. Or my favorite, I voted for Obama. Oh, right. But yet it is clear, indignant racism. Right. Mm. It's it's you know, I I told someone I was like, it's not physical lynching, but it is psychological lynching because Mm. they will sit in your face and tell you all the things that they are not while they actively try to take your job, take your peace, take your house. Um you know, drag your name through the street so you don't get a new job mm-hmm. while growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, people would do that, but you knew they were going to do it, <laughs> right? Yes. It was expected. So there is there is none of this psychological unsafety because it's like, well, of course he would do that because yesterday, you know, he said A, B, and C to me, which meant that he was going to do that. Right, right. Right. <laughs> You bring up a really good point, Lex, and it's like, here, here's the thing, right? So there's there's human nature, and then there's mm. the social construct. Yeah. Social construct is the, I, I'm not a racist, I voted for Obama, right? I have plenty of Black yes. friends. My my granddaughter's Black, right? Not, not, oh, black. I love that one. My cousin's Black, and I'm like, oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, <laughs> history uh, but yeah but, but then there's the, then there's human nature and human nature essentially states that um no one puts themselves into positions of discomfort unwillingly right or excuse me willingly Ooh. right yeah so i don't care if you are black white brown purple blue if you are in a power dominant position your inherent nature is not to relinquish that unless by force now mm. Now, let's take this from a historical standpoint. So if we look at any civilization throughout history, I mean, the history of human civilizations, there has never been one where the most privileged, powerful, or highly status people gave those positions up willingly. Mm. It's only happened via war or yeah. catastrophic event, right? Yeah. Because the only yeah. two... So, so when I see power dominant people, AKA European people in power or whoever the power dominant are by economic class, they aren't interested in equity and inclusion mm. because then mm. that would put them in a position of discomfort, AKA removing power, privilege, or status. Mm. So this is kind of the, 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 the understanding of the construct we're in. Now, when people individually get into their prejudiced behaviors and beliefs based on the social construct, all right, cool. You're just running the code of the bigger construct program. Like, I get that. And then you know how to deal with them. But once you understand the nature of a thing, you can't be upset when it acts within its nature. You just better understand Mm. how to navigate its nature. Mm. And that's where we're at today. So let's go into that. Yeah. Yeah. How do we navigate this nature? I think that it is very easy to say, y'all, we have to divest, right? Um, and for the record, I say that every single day. I tell everyone, you need to divest from systems, 
people and places that do mm. not serve you. It yeah. is easy to say. Yes. I think hard. it is intrinsically hard to do because of the system that we live in that is based on colonialism and capitalism. Tell me more about how we can actually do that as a people. And to be frank with you, regardless of race, because as I tell many people who are white, capitalism yes. also messes you up, <laughs> right? Um, it actually only feeds the 1% cisgendered, heteronormative white men who say they are Christian. That's a very small percentage of the population of the world. So how do we actively divest knowing that we still have to work within the system until our refugee cards get approved for Wakanda? And yes, my application has been in for about two years and I'm still waiting to hear back. <laughs> well, you actually won't have to wait for Wakanda because Kenya is <laughs> just approved uh, visas for any Black American. Really? I, I did not know that. I know Ghana was doing something. I didn't know Kenya was in it too. Great. Kenya's now in it blanket. So Ghana, there were still some stipulations. Kenya was like, yes. if you are Black and American, you can come live here. Visa approved. Mm. So mm. all of that to say, you ask a very good question, and it's one that I often wrestle with. So there is that struggle between freedom and security. I don't know that we have fully define what freedom looks like for us absent okay. the colonial model. So that's one. That's mm. a whole, we need to have a constitutional convention of the Black folks and come together and figure this out. But divest, divestiture is only possible when you have an infrastructure to rely on as an alternative. So for instance, exactly. right? Mm -hmm. So, so I, I talked earlier about communal obligation. You don't have a successful self-sufficient alternative unless you have a community that has to be first and foremost. And so I'm an ardent student of Dr. Claude Anderson, uh, several books, but one of the most powerful, two of the most powerful out of his series that I've read were um, uh, Black Labor, White Wealth, and then also uh, Powernomics. But in Powernomics, he lays out a plan as to how we could return to that self-sufficiency model. And everybody likes to start with the economics. Right. Mm. If we just had more funding, more access to to finance, da, 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 da. I said, well, yeah, but if you don't have a collective community first, then all your economics just get blown away by individual consumption, bad investments, whatever. You right. need a community to funnel all of the economics in first. So first and foremost, you have to have a ter territory or turf to call your own. So then I mm. ask, have you ever been to Chinatown? Koreatown, uh, Little Havana, oh, yeah. uh, little, little right, little little Mexico. What are the what are the things that first and foremost you know? How do you know when you've arrived in Chinatown, Lexi? So What's I live in Oakland, <laughs> and so we have an Oakland Chinatown, also a San Francisco Chinatown, and honestly, best dim sum in the in, in America, if you ask my opinion. Okay, I don't disagree. <laughs> what I love about Oakland and San Francisco Chinatown is that as soon as you walk in you know you are in a different place. You are in an occupied territory of Chinese people and their descendants, and it's the most beautiful thing. We're talking about signs that are in Mandarin and Cantonese. Um, my favorite um, place to get fried rice in Oakland Chinatown, ready for this, is right next to a Chinatown DMV, okay? And, <laughs> and I love it. I love it. And I walked in once because I just love the layers of culture. Everything is in Mandarin and Cantonese and English. 
um, they actually have signs that basically allow you to drop the elder off so they can take their test, knowing that there are people that are going to take care of your grandmother. So it's not just, oh, open the door and you have an appointment at 9 a.m. It's also this very big Chinese effort of we take care of our elders. So if you cannot sit with your grandmother as she waits for her license to be changed, Mm -hmm. we will have someone sit with her and we will bring her food. It is very common in Chinatown that I'm not going to lie. They definitely rent to their own people and I'm not mad and I'm not mad. Um, And then on the weekends, even, even the, even the traffic. So obviously we live in America. We have pretty much standard traffic rules and regulations. Everybody knows in Chinatown, those rules don't apply. And everybody knows, including the police, F around and find out if you try to regulate those rules that do not apply. So when you are driving in Chinatown, it is very common to have a truck stop in the middle of the road to unload. I wish you would call 911 while you sit there for 10 minutes. It's not going to work. And so they've created an oasis for their people and for their culture and have been so unapologetic about it. And I find it very beautiful. So everything you've just noted is exactly why Chinatown, right? And and, and the only thing you did leave out was the aesthetic. So there are cultural. Oh, yes. Visually. Oh, yes. Let yes. you know you have now entered a, a different place. cultural haven for our community. Mm-hmm. right? Now, that enables them to have an economic base because they've got, number one, they're grounded in culture. Number Mm two, uh, language. Number three, uh, a communal obligation that suggests I am am by default obligated to support, help, aid you as you are of my community, right? So now with that, they can build an economic base. That economic base can fund uh, schools, hospitals, security, all of the things, right? But then on top of that, they can have their own uh, media or political representation that represents the interests of their community. Why? Because their economic base can purchase political representation, which is exactly how that system works. That political representation can now uh, lobby for the interests of that community and its economics and its people. They also have their own media, right? News, radio, television. They also have their own schools. They have the five fundamental requirements for uh, a strong and thriving self-sufficient community, not segregated. They still transact and and, and work with people from outside and in. Oh, yes. They defer first to their people and their community. What we don't have is that communal foundation because language disintegrated. uh, 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 um, uh, Culture has been interrupted. Um, and then also our, our interests to each other. We've been conditioned and trained for 37 generations to distrust each other. Mm. All of these things are the foundation for us to be successfully able to divest. If we don't get the foundational communal obligation element back, then I don't care how much money is pumped in, how many Black-owned businesses we start, none of it serves to a communal benefit ever. And they know that. Which is sad because, you know, Angela Davis and what you're doing right now in Texas, we used to have it, right? We used to have, we used to have Tulsa and I use Tulsa as an example for the hundreds, if not thousands of communities like Tulsa 
up and down throughout the South and the Midwest um, in the 1800s and 1900s that have been displaced, that have been burned down, that have Mm -hmm. been murdered through um, and all the things. I would love to get your thoughts as a scholar on we had it and literally they took it away. Uh, Why? Well, two answers to that. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Well, the first one honestly was they didn't take it away. Mm. What they did was they stopped resisting and gave us access. So the Civil Rights Act with desegregation now meant you could have access to our communities, our businesses, our schools. So with anything- As if if those institutions were better than the ones that we created for ourselves. Well, remember- That That was the marketing PR campaign at least, but go ahead. Well, remember, there's the the social construct, and then there's human nature. Mm. The thing that you're denied most will become the object of your desires. Yes. And that's for anyone. Yes. What will be denied most? Access. From from the start of this country, we had no... So they said, okay, we're missing out on a huge amount of tax base. Let them in. And we'll figure this out. We'll socially re-engineer this so that you don't have to be... You can't be overtly racist, or else you're going to mess up the money. You can keep your racism, keep your beliefs, but you can't mess up the money. So we'll give them access. And in so doing, the thing that was the object of our deepest desires, we now had access to. And what we are living through right now in the third generation post-Civil Rights Act is the excess of access. Overindulgence. Uh. What happens when you're starving, when you're hungry, and then you open up a room and there's nothing but food? You go to town. You eat. You eat. capacity. Right. We are experiencing, we're witnessing with these younger generations, the overindulgence of access. So when we leave ours, because we have this belief that white ice is somehow colder, all of our institutions crumble because we are now looking at our own as substandard because now we've been given access to the, you know, to the, to the glitzy and the glamoury and, and the things that they've been withholding for themselves forever. Well, that was our biggest detriment. And again, not unplanned because mm. if mm. if they were to give access and if we had something that we believed was a better quality safer um, uh, uh, you know long term financially better why would we leave mm. so no you build up the substandard to then give access to a better standard but you're going to have to give some things up in order to get access AKA the autonomy, the control of your dollar, the control of your education, the control of your welfare and well-being, the rearing of your children, the communal obligation. All of those things go out the window the moment we got access. Now, I never look back in history and judge the ancestors for decisions they made because they had no frame of reference for what access would look like if we achieved it. They only fought for access, and people often forget this. But we, my father being the first generation born pre-access and then grew up post-access. Right. I'm, I'm born in 1980. I'm, you know, like the first uh, Gen Xers, uh, you know, born after 64, let's say, born as the first. And I tell people we're only 59 years into full human recognition as citizens in this country. 59. We're still trying to figure it out. Yeah. 50, 
that's my point, right? So, so colonial, the colonial model is nearly 600 years old, right? Because right. America wasn't the first. It was <laughs> not. People forget that. It was not. It was a copy paste, y'all. It was a copy paste. Thank you. So we're going okay. back to like the 1440s if we're yes. really talking about this. So yes. 59 years in the face of 600, we're not even close to starting to figure out what freedom feels like yet. Yes. And also, and also to add to that, I think that and our, our ancestors were also looking at resources, not access, but resources, right? Because sure. we cannot deny the lack of resources in black and brown communities, even mm. within these communities that we created that were thriving. There was mm. still lack of resources. So I always think, you know, I wasn't there you know, in the thirties, forties and fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm always thinking what, what were y'all thinking about? And I always first go to resources, right? Um, yeah. My kid deserves first edition textbooks. They do not deserve the ones that the school down the street has used for 15 years. That's colored all over that has racist words in it because the, the kids know it's going to go to the black schoolhouse. Okay. And then my seven-year-old opens the book and half the words aren't even there anymore. Can, mm-hmm. can my seven-year-old get a new book so they can also learn the math, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I, I often try to deconstruct this because I'm like, okay, the push for equal access mm. uh, was also to then compete for equal resources. Yes. But, but there's never been a guarantee for equal resources nor equal outcomes. Yes. Right, so, so access grants you an opportunity, sure. You're still going to have to deal with the things like the, the textbooks being subpar, uh, uh, the teaching conditions, the environment, all of those things not accounted for. Fine. But I question, was there also and is there still also this raging void that we're still seeking to be filled in mm. order to be seen as equal, as mm. fully human in the eyes and standards of a Eurocentric power dominant culture and then that drives much of the behavior right right because divestiture would mean that we want to remove resources from that which harms us and invest it into that which would build us up make us safe and make us feel whole well none of that changes even if you divest and you have the community structure unless you heal yes therapy is also a huge requirement because i dare say it's going to take several generations for that conditioning or I call the um, the operating system of our ancestors to be recoded. Let's talk about corporate America, because I think this is a great segue, because I think that. People who are in corporate America or just the corporate world, I think that corporate America is so much bigger than just the United States anymore. Right. We live in a global society of economy. Sure. What does that look like in your opinion in the corporate world as we have the next generation of um, young adults, mature kiddos starting to realize their potential in corporate, very large company conglomerates and having to navigate doing it my way and doing good work or having to do it like 
insert name because that's what they that, that's what gets glorified and that's what gets promoted. Okay. Uh well, and, and and it's a great it's a great point because I see this a lot and I'm I'm not <laughs> I'm not so removed from that sentiment, but I think mm-hmm. once you've seen too much you can't unsee certain things. And so what that's I That's the truth. You cannot like, go back. You so, cannot go back. <laughs> I've been behind some doors and I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Yes. So here's the thing. There, there's a new generation who believes that the antiquated ways and methods of achieving certain outcomes isn't necessary. I can do it my way because I have technology and I have social and I have all of these other things that I can do. Sure. However, when we look at the leadership structure of most Fortune 550, 10 companies, they still look a very specific way, right? They don't look like me, no. Facts, and that's not yes. by accident. So the question then becomes, well, why is that? Mm. Because the demographics are certainly leaning themselves more towards uh, a diverse reflection. Well, yeah. again, it goes back to my earliest statements. Those who are most powerful, privileged, and highly statist do not give that up willingly. Mm. So then you say, okay, well, maybe if we just wait till they age out, well, Mm. this system that they built, this construct they built designed itself to replicate itself so that it doesn't crumble. Age out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's the, here's the kicker then. So even if they, they install a point tap, a leader that looks like you or I, guess what? The construct has still replicated itself because you don't get tapped to lead unless you've been deemed safe and a good steward of status quo. The system will never appoint its own demise. That's the other rule that most people don't get. So they think, well, if I work my way to the top, well, then I can change it from the inside. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. First of all, you don't get to the top unless you showcase that you are on the program and run the code. Secondly, they don't allow you into those circles unless you have showcased and demonstrated uh, the ability to not only maintain, but expand the status Mm -hmm. quo. Mm -hmm. That's why you've never seen out of the 26 Black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies ever change the system. They can't. And I don't care if that's corporate or if we're talking about global politics. Yeah. So not to be all doom and gloom, corporate, you have to understand the construct you're walking into first because you have a decision to make before you graduate from college. And I know we were all sold the same narrative. Go to school, get a degree, get a good job, work 30 years, retire, die. (laughs) That's that's our ancestors programming post and pre-access. Yes. New model. Do I want to pay the cost that's required to play in this construct? If so, proceed. If not, what do I need to do to be self-sufficient and control the outcomes and outputs of my labor? Mm. You're going to have to be educated in finance to understand how money works. You're yes. going to have to understand how to run a business so as to be solvent. <laughs> and you're going to have to understand how to network, how to market, all of the functions in corporate. So I say split the difference. Go to corporate, but learn how the mechanisms of business operate. Meet your co-founders, your CFO, your CMO, your CTO, and funnel your paycheck 
into your venture. Your corporate employer becomes your venture capital backer. Ooh, I love that. Your corporate employer becomes, becomes your, your VC backer. Capital backer. Mm. And that is a model that we have seen plenty of people do. Oh, always. Silicon Valley's full of massive companies that started just how I said. Yeah. I see immigrants come to the country all the time to do exactly that. Work the lower, rise up, understand the mechanisms, and boom, done. I think the hard thing about it, and I say this as a person who is now reformed, mm. right? I had to get baptized okay. out of it in my 20s. That's I was right. the person that went to college, got the good job in tech, and I tried for about four years, John to do what they wanted me to do and conform. And I remember around the fourth year, I woke up one morning, I said, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. done. And I had to start going to therapy to understand my why. I realized in that fourth year that I was insanely depressed and insanely unhappy, even though I was doing what the rule book said, right. right? I was getting all the accolades when I went home for the holidays. Oh, she got a good job. Right. Um, and I had to disassociate from societal and community standards in order to find my own freedom path. And fun fact, as soon as I started doing that, guess what? My corporate career exploded. Not because I continued to act in a certain way, but because I just started doing things my way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I got good at my job. And mm -hmm. like you said, cash is king. So regardless of what you looked like, when you were like, oh, she can make me more money, I just made it clear from the first interview, I do it my way. Mm. That doesn't mean that I'm going to insult you. That doesn't mean that every day is going to be an Alex Haley Roots conversation. But what it does mean <laughs> is that there are boundaries. And what it does mean is that I am a very witty person and I have 85 and a half million ways to check you when you are inappropriate to me. Right. But I had to I had to unlearn in order to learn how to figure out, as you said, using this as my VC for the life that I call being black, blessed, lotioned and left alone. Um, and I am currently still on that journey. <laughs> yes. 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 Look, and I think that works when mm. you realize a few things. One that your validation in the eyes of whiteness and proximity to whiteness does not define your success. Yes. That is something that I think a lot of us still have not learned because mm. for, for many reasons, but the other side of that is, and I do a talk called the cost of the climb. And I've done this at a lot of companies, especially to a lot of black ERGs. We still inherently believe that our value is connected to our work output. Oh, speak more, John. You went there. Speak more. Speak more. Well, and then, I'll, then I'll, I'll typically ask the audience, how many people have ever trained a, a subordinate who then became their manager? Right? Mm. Uh, how, how many people have ever heard in their performance review when asked about uh, a promotion because you hit all your metrics, you've increased the uh, top and bottom line performance, you've reduced costs, you've done all the things. But then when you ask for promotion, they say, ooh, let's, let's, not see, yet. How, let's see how next yeah. year. Not yet, not yet. And then yeah. when you ask for feedback, well, we don't have any feed negative feedback. Ah, Just keep doing right. what you're doing, John. Just, That's right. Yeah. Or, 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 oh, she's good, 
but she she lacks executive presence. She's not she's yeah. not polished, a little rough around the edges, right? right? These are all of the things that would then push us to go get more certifications, get more degrees, mm. to get more mentorship, more training. All of the things that would suggest we're broken. But that's because we still believe our value is tied to our output. What you're, what they're not telling you is that, number one, you don't speak the language of power yet. Mm. You do not have aximity, uh, access or proximity to power, so you don't know how we move. Uh, you're doing so good in this role. If we were to upset that balance, it would make me look horrible because I'm mediocre managing excellence. I don't have to be excellent. I just have to manage excellence. So I'm not going to move you. Why would I do that? You want me to pay you more and elevate your title. That means that we're now peers. Well, again, um, business 101, increase profitability, productivity for low cost overhead. Um, Why am I going to pay you more when I'm getting the work of six people out of you? Right. We don't think about these things. We just think work harder. Well, that's why they brought us to this country in the first place. It's that enslavement mentality. Um, Or even just the number of people, and I'm sure you've seen it as well, where when the performance review comes, they don't get what they want and or deserve. It's this crumbling effect. Like everything in in the world. On that. Right. That's because right. I did not get the A plus in the performance review, I am nothing. I am no longer human. And I think sure. that for everyone, when you can let that go, because also I think that what we need to talk about real quick is the why, right? Mm-hmm. We don't talk enough about what are individuals, people's, what, why are you at this company? Is it to learn a new skill? Is it to work with this manager? Is it to hustle really hard for two years to get that next title, whether it's at this company or someplace else? Sure. Is it the health benefits? <laughs> Do you want to have a baby and this company gives you one year maternity leave? And for folks who are listening, that is a thing at some companies. 100%. 100%. And I think that we don't have those conversations because like you said, we are conditioned to labor. I, I know tons of people in my life who do not look at me and they are having these conversations all the time with each other. That's right. That's Tell right. me more about that. What do you think That's about right. that? Well, it, it comes with a re-imagining uh, of our relationship to work, right? Mm. It, it, well, this has been an abusive relationship from the start and yet we can't run. We can't leave. Mm. Somehow, if we just make it better, if we just do what we're supposed to, they'll be better it starts to run the same pattern as an abusive relationship. So we have to first change our relationship to work. What is the purpose we are at this organization at this time? And how is that fueling? Again, if I had my uh, uh, venture, my enterprise that I'm building, well, then now I know exactly what skills I need to acquire and which company is best suited to arm me with those skills. To your point, you become a lot more thoughtful and intentional about the jobs you take and the jobs you don't, regardless of, well, this one has the better health benefits or this one's going to pay me more, but, you know, this one's going to pay me less. But I'll, well, no, now you're thinking who's there, what skills can I obtain here and how can that benefit my enterprise? Um, so, yes, there is that. And I'm starting to see some of that okay. from, from our from our uh, our from black professionals. Um but by and large, we're still very much in the mindset of working 30 years, retire and die. And that's only because we're still chasing security mm. because 
we had neither freedom nor security. So the moment we got access, that was a pathway to security. Right. Where where right. I think this goes, where I think this goes left potentially is when we think about how much money we can make the higher we rise mm. in an organization. Then we start to fall into the traps and what's required when we don't meet certain criteria, because again, we weren't exposed to them. And I've talked to HBCU Black professionals. I've talked to HWI Black professionals. The difference between the two, and I'm an HBCU alum double time, um, we weren't brought up in our formative years in the proximity of white normative behavior when it yeah. comes to how they compete, yeah. how they how they relax, how they gossip, how they uh, value, devalue. Uh, we've only done it in a social context, but not in a professional context or academic context where we're competing literally for accolades and um, and resume uh, builders. So that is an advantage, I would say, that HWI Black professionals do have. However, unless they've been pulled to the side giving game or, or, or tapped and understood, they don't know the hidden language, right? And, mm-hmm. and I dig deep into this and there's a, there's a deep psychological uh, frame of reference for what I'm talking about called conversational pragmatics and the sister who put me on to this is a double eight uh, Howard U alum and then PhD from Northwestern. And she very much blew my world apart when she told me that black Americans know probably 80% of the English language. There's a 20% reserved for the power structure that unless you grow up among it, you don't know it. And so when you're sitting in yeah. a meeting and you're hearing, you're hearing all of these things being tossed back around, you're hearing people agree and you're sitting there like, but y'all didn't say nothing. Oh, no, they said everything, but they don't speak directly because they speak in a linguistic device called uh, uh, pragmatic, right? It's, it's leaving the understanding to the listener to infer meaning rather than being direct, transparent, straightforward. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We prioritize the linguistic device, which says the words coming out of my mouth, say what you mean and mean what you say, right? Don't it is a sick. cultural difference. It is a cultural it's difference that as a person that went to a, um, not, not an HBCU, yeah, 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 I had to learn that when I started working in corporate and I would actually tell my white counterparts, I'm like, you know, black people, we don't talk like this. We do not communicate like this. When my mother told me do the dishes, there was no inference in that or possible outcomes other than me doing the dishes, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. I love that term. That's fabulous. Yeah. Oh, it's a whole conversation uh, that we don't have enough time to get into, but it's one that I do in my in my talks with Black professionals at Black ERGs and Fortune 500 companies. And, and, and when they come through the other side of that, their worlds are, are shattered because they've yeah. thought the whole time that, oh, but I code switch well, or, you know, I, I'm pretty good at reading between the lines. Well, no, 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 no. You're competing with people. And in the psychological studies they were doing on children, in, you know, between five and seven years old, they were using some of these linguistic tactics at mastery level by that age, because their yep. parents speak it, their grandparents, mm-hmm. all of their immediate family, their teachers, their coaches, their pastors, everybody in that society speaks to some degree that language. You just got here. <laughs> and you're still thinking, oh, okay, well, yeah. So so what you're telling me is go talk to such and such and come back, circle back, and then we'll have a conversation. So that means that when I go talk to such and such and come back, then you're gonna green light my front. No, no, no. No. They no. told you go talk to somebody and then then we'll then we'll talk. 
Yeah. That's all they committed or, to. Or, depending on who you talk to, that could also mean, don't come talk to me. I am nicely telling you, you have wasted my time. Be go blessed. Get busy. Go, go do busy work. At, at go do something. Time. But don't, don't, don't call me. Don't call me. But we hear what they're saying, but not what they're implying. And that's a whole nother conversation that leaves us a lot of times um, at a disadvantage when it comes to elevation in organizations. And when they say they're not polished or refined or lacks executive presence, that's the priority. That's the primary thing they're talking about. You Hmm. don't understand the language of power. So why would I allow you into this circle? Because number one, we'll eat you alive. Second of all, you you will fail because you will miss most of the things that are being communicated without being overtly stated. And that's a whole different world. So I know that we're running out of time, but I really need to talk about plantation theory. I'm 50% done. It is blowing my mind. So for folks who don't know, John wrote this book a few years ago, right? Juneteenth. Relatively new. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell us about it because I want everyone to know about it. Well, thank you first and foremost for reading. I can't wait till you get to the other 50%. So we can Um, I wrote Plantation Theory because uh, a few things. One, just my uh, experiences in corporate America um, and the experiences of others, not not only people I work with, but my parents Mm. uh, experienced both being, uh, both my father being corporate professional, my mother being corporate professional who left corporate to be an entrepreneur. Mm. Um, I, I, I saw so many similarities in the experiences. And then George Floyd uh, is murdered. And then we start having these courageous conversations and everybody wants to hear the black story and the black plight. And I'm sitting there listening, like you'd have thought we had all got together to collude to make sure our stories were the same because they are the same. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and I'm like, such universality of experience showcases number one, that we are a uh, responder to a construct that pretty much guarantees a similar experience. But number two, uh, we often didn't have an avenue to vocalize it. So 2020 was probably the first time that many Black folks ever got a chance to share their experience as a Black person in corporate, and uh, openly anyway. You know, we always talked about it amongst ourselves. But so so I had been working on a documentary pre-2020 uh, okay. that was going to document the lived experiences of Black professionals. It was called Lived Experience. My My outline for the documentary, uh, once the documentary got, uh, uh, what's the word, Uh, canned, uh, due due to budgets uh, internally, Uh, that outline for the documentary then became the chapter outline for plantation theory. I changed the title. So what you see in that outline was me walking through the lived experiences of Black professionals, mainly through my own experience, but then those in my immediate family and so forth. But tying making a very clear connection between uh, the dots of history, right? So connecting the dots between our history in this or- in this country as uh, labor to our modern day lived experience as corporate um, professional labor. And that was the intent of the book. So that we could understand that what we're dealing with right now is number one, not new. The, the plantation construct, construct has not changed. It's um, evolved, it's been rebranded, it's been repackaged but the bones are still the bones. They are. And that's why we experience what we experience because we still operate. There's, without plugging another book while talking about my book, but it's it's highly relevant. There's a book called um, Accounting for Slavery, uh, Masters wow. and Management by Caitlin Rosenthal, 
when you read this, that book, is a title. That is a title. <laughs> let me tell you. Let me tell you. When you get into it, and she went through ledgers of plantation owners from the 1600s for Caribbean plantation owners and American plantation owners. And she did the, she looked at the accounting models and the way in which they managed labor and the way that they brought efficiencies and increased efficiencies accounted for illnesses. PTO is not a new concept. It is not. Uh, 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 There's so many things that we still, the Gantt chart. People don't know who Gantt was. Mm. owned over 200 plus human beings. And yet we still use his chart in modern day management. So what I'm saying to you is that there is such an underpinning that we don't know because we weren't taught and we weren't meant to be taught that this construct has not changed and it still does exactly what it was designed to do. It has just evolved and modernized with the times. And I wanted to expose that in a way that not only helps us understand what we're navigating before we get into it, but while we're in it to make course corrections and adjustments. And then for those who don't look like us, who will be tapped by default to lead or manage based on pedigree and institutional connections and so forth. Now you have an understanding of what you are complicit in. So you have now an opportunity to make changes in the way you Mm. manage your tap. So it served multiple audiences, but yes, um, my intent was to connect the dots between history and our modern day lived experience. I love it. I love it. There you have it, listeners. John, thank you so much for being with me here today and for being so honest and candid. I hope this was a safe space for you. What The work that you're doing is phenomenal and, and we need it. I thank you. I thank you. The pleasure is mine. I'm grateful for the opportunity, Lexi. I love what you're doing. I love who you are, who you've been, who you're going to be. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for joining our table today. Remember to follow me on LinkedIn at Lexi B and subscribe to our newsletter to get all the hot tea on updates, upcoming guests, and more. Stay honest, stay curious, and above all, stay authentic. Much love, fam. Much love.